we exist? Were we created with a purpose? Or are we just here by chance? What are we to believe about life, faith, and worldview? Welcome to the universe next door, focusing on answers to the questions we all consider. This show is a ministry of the C.S. Lewis Society and supported by gifts of listeners just like you. Join us as we seek to see a generation captivated and transformed by the truth of Christianity. This is The Universe Next Door. Welcome to The Universe Next Door. This is Nick Shalma, and today we are continuing the second part of our short series on the reliability of the New Testament. Uh, or why we should trust the New Testament. Of course, last week we had Dan Wallace, and he talked about New Testament manuscripts. He is one of the world's top, top experts in the area of New Testament manuscripts. And in fact, uh, he and his people over at CSNTM are doing amazing work to digitalize all of the Greek New Testament manuscripts. So when you see a high-quality picture uh, or photo of those manuscripts, that was him at CSNTM. So check that episode out from last week. It's a perfect one to share with a friend uh, who may be misled on how the Bible was translated and transmitted because it is mind-blowing how accurate uh, the whole process was. It's incredible. And today, we're going to be bringing on Daryl Bach, the one and only Daryl Bach, at least the only one I've heard of. So if there's another Daryl Bach, correct me on that. But uh, who better to bring on to talk about the reliability of the New Testament than Daryl Bach? So we're going to be bringing him on today, and it's going to be an incredible interview. We covered uh, how we know Jesus of Nazareth actually walked the earth and existed. We talked about the hypostatic union, him being truly God, truly man. We got into alternative gospels and uh, why the New Testament is trustworthy over books such as the Quran or Middle Eastern writings and all that sort of thing. So uh, it's a very helpful episode. It's going to equip you to practically answer questions. But before we do that, make sure you hit follow wherever you listen to podcasts, uh, whether it's on Apple, Spotify, just hit follow. That way you're alerted every week when a new episode comes out Monday night at 6 p.m. And don't forget to share this episode with a friend who might doubt the reliability of the New Testament. Well, that being said, let's get into our interview with Dr. Daryl Bach. Dr. Daryl Bach is Executive Director of Cultural Engagement at the Hendricks Center and Senior Research Professor of New Testament Studies at Dallas Theological Seminary. He is the author of over 40 books, including Cultural Intelligence and Breaking the Da Vinci Code. He's the host of Table Podcast, which I'll link in the description below. And his resume is much more extensive than that, but I'm hoping we can also get to some other topics today. So, Daryl Bach, how are you? I'm doing well, Nick. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. Are you in Texas, I presume? I am absolutely in Texas where it is finally cooling down and, um, you know, and it, it's almost thinking about raining. Oh, well, that's, it must be a miracle. I, we just had uh, Dan Wallace on. Obviously, he's in Texas and then Wayne Grudem, who's in Arizona. So you guys are kind of taking over in that group of the country over there. Yeah, well, we have lots of Christians down here because people understand the concept of Hades. They get to directly experience it every summer. <laughs> well, I guess that's true. Uh, Florida is a little too humid, I guess, to compare to Hades, but it's something awful. <laughs> so not too long ago, you wrote a book called Cultural Intelligence. Now, for the, the interview today, I'd like to get into some stuff about Jesus of Nazareth and the reliability of the New Testament. But first, can you tell us about cultural intelligence? Well, this is a book that's designed to help Christians think about how to live in a pluralistic space. And... Uh, my belief is, is the church has been slow to adjust to the realities of the last 25, 30 years where the um, 
kind of Judeo-Christian net around at least American culture has um, has basically gone away. And so what does that mean for how the church interacts with people? How do you walk into difficult conversations where you know where you are and where the person you're having a conversation with are not the same place? Um, what are the things that you do that kill those conversations? What are the things you can do to advance those conversations in a positive direction? And I really do believe that the church has has risked getting off message by making people the enemy when, in fact, they're the goal. And so uh, thinking through how that ought to work is really what the book Cultural Intelligence is all about. It helps us understand uh, what the Bible has to say about engagement in general, because uh, we don't have a theology of cultural engagement, generally speaking. And then we go in and, and talk about some practicalities about how that's supposed to work. Wow, it's funny because we just finished a series uh, on something similar to that, how to deal with cultural and ethical issues as a Christian, um, look at everything through a biblical perspective. So we should have invited you on twice, uh, if I had thought of it. Uh, but <laughs> well, you know, actually what I'm talking about is a, is a space that's a little bit different than the particular issues that you're dealing with. It's asking the more general question of, how do you walk into this space to begin with? What should you seek to achieve, regardless of what the specific issue is? What is it that you're seeking to do when you're engaging in the public square and in a pluralistic environment? So I call this a meta conversation. You set it alongside the particular issues, but it actually overarches in such a way that you know what you're trying to achieve when you walk into a particular conversation. Oh, wow. Well, I'm going to be linking that in the description below. So for those of you listening, make sure you check it out. Um, sounds like an awesome book. Now, you've, you've also written a number of books about Jesus of Nazareth specifically, and it's funny, but it seems like sometimes the simplest questions are the most difficult uh, for many people to answer on the spot in a conversation. And we, we may all have this information in our heads, but we don't quite know what to do with it when the time comes. So how might you suggest responding to the question, what's so unique about Jesus? Why, why should I follow him when there's so many other options out there? Well, what's unique about Jesus, of course, is actually what the challenge of the church is, and that is to explain how Jesus was a one of a kind. He is different than any other human being that's walked the earth. No human being who's walked the earth has claimed to be or has functioned as God in the flesh. Now, we all are made in the image of God. That's one thing. But we're not, we're not claiming to be God's son. We're not claiming that, that we sit with God in heaven and exercise authority and rule, those kinds of images and pictures. And so we're really discussing a unique human being who has both divine and human qualities, and that makes Jesus a very unique figure. Uh, and of course, the Gospels are designed to show us how it dawned on people that Jesus could be such a person. Um, and the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke do it more indirectly. John does it very directly, but they're all trying to say the same thing as they talk about the life of Jesus. And so there's this idea of the, the hypostatic union, and that's a fancy term um, for being truly God and truly man. And so people hear this and they probably think that that sounds like a demigod, like similar to the movie Moana or maybe something out of Greek legend or something like that. Um, how could we go about sort of maybe breaking that down for somebody who's never heard of this concept or maybe has even attended church but isn't aware of the truly God, truly man idea? Well, frankly, it's a hard concept to get your head around because it's it's bigger than the person, if I can say it that way. Uh, God is a figure who transcends uh, 
the human limitations that we have. So what I think the way to, to think about it is to do it the way the Gospels do it, which is the Gospels try and get us not to focus on, how, if you will, the, uh, the description of what that looks like as much as showing what its presence means. And so what you see in the Gospels is Jesus doing and exercising the kind of authority and making the kinds of claims that God does with substantiation behind it. This is actually the function of the miracles in Jesus' life is to show their PowerPoints, their points about his power, their points about his authority. And so they're designed to show that when Jesus makes a claim of healing someone on a Sabbath, and the Sabbath is supposed to be a rest day, it's the Lord's day, it's a day in which nothing is supposed to happen, theoretically, and yet he exercises the power to heal someone and to forgive their sin. Uh, God, the, the Jewish view was God doesn't help a sinner who does something improper. So the question becomes, how did this guy get healed? How did this positive result happen on a day when nothing's supposed to be happening? Well, it's because Jesus has the authority to do it and and then does it and shows that he can do it. So the person of Jesus is more demonstrated than it is described, if I can say it that way. And that's how the Gospels present who Jesus is. So this idea of Jesus doing miracles and healing people, of course, that's compassionate and it's loving, but the the real thrust of it is to demonstrate his divinity? The real thrust of it, yes, is to show that God is behind what he is doing and saying. Now, th- this is just a, a question that popped into my head because I, I love this topic, but do you have a, like a favorite prophecy from the Old Testament that Jesus had fulfilled? Like something that was just like, wow. <laughs> well, I, th- I think it's interesting— um, I, I think the way I want to answer the question is there's a group of texts that are important. Um, the Daniel 7 text about the Son of Man is a very important text because this is Jesus' favorite name for himself. And Son of Man literally means a human being, like a son of David, you know, a son of John. A son of a human being is actually what it means literally. So this is a human being, but he rides the clouds. Okay, In the Old Testament, only one figure rides the clouds. That's God. And he goes to receive judgment authority from the Ancient of Days. So th- this is this picture of absolute authority that Jesus has. And then Psalm 110.1 has Jesus seated at the right hand of God. In fact, when Jesus was asked if he was the Messiah, he not only answered that question positively, but then he turned around and cited Psalm 110.1 and Daniel 7 together to show you can do with me what you want. You may send me to the cross, but God's going to vindicate me one day, and you can write me at www.righthandofgod.com, <laughs> and I will be responding. Because God's going to vindicate me and lift me up and, to his side, and we're going to see his authority from that location. So those two texts together are very important. Son of man, because it's Jesus's favorite way to refer to himself. And then the right hand of God, because that talks about the vindication of God that comes in association with the crucifixion and resurrection. Wow, yeah, and it, it's incredible when, when Jesus quotes the uh, the coming on the clouds to Caiaphas, and Caiaphas immediately understands what he means and tears his robes. Um, so there's a lot of language going on. Yeah, I tell people, I tell people that the problem with the Pharisees isn't that they don't understand Jesus. They understand Jesus quite well. They just don't believe what he's saying. Wow. Yeah. And that's that's evident throughout the New Testament. There's a lot of language used that uh, a lot of people maybe just coming to Scripture won't understand and may gloss over. But the deeper you go into these terms, it's like, yeah, they knew exactly what Jesus was saying. 
Yeah, the, the New Testament's full of what I call cultural scripts. These are things that are practices that are understood intuitively by the, by the writer and the reader because they live in that first century environment and don't need to have explanation. Uh, but someone on the outside may or may not get it. It's like the sentence I like to use as an illustration. The cowboys are going to the frozen tundra to melt the cheese heads. And um, if I handed that sentence to someone in Saudi Arabia learning English and even gave them an Arabic-English dictionary, and they looked up every word, they'd have no clue what that sentence was about. But anyone who lives in the United States and understands American football knows immediately how much information is being communicated. And in fact, it's a kind of shorthand, okay, because the Cowboys are the Dallas Cowboys, the Cheeseheads represent the Green Bay Packers, the frozen tundra represents Lambeau Field. And so there's a lot of information packed in that cultural script, which a person who understands American football will immediately get, but someone on the outside will be clueless. That's a great analogy, that cultural script. I, uh, with your permission, I'd love to use that <laughs> with my youth group. Uh, but sure. that's, that's really helpful. Now, I, I know you've written a lot about this and done a lot of uh, work in this area, but how do we even know that Jesus exists? Is there a simple way we can sort of demonstrate, that, at, at least on a simple level, that Jesus walked on the earth in the first century? Yeah, first of all, I'll just say that virtually every cult classical scholar um, recognizes that Jesus existed. And that's because there are citations among non-Christian authors about Jesus who write from a, from a proximity to the time of Jesus that we can, we can trust. And so Josephus, who is a Jewish historian of the late first century living in Galilee uh, and in Israel, um, alludes to Jesus in a passage in Antiquities, uh, book 18, it's unit 63 and 64, if you want to look it up. Now, we have this in an altered state. Everyone recognizes that what we have today has been altered by a Christian scribe of some kind because Josephus also confesses that Jesus is the Messiah and that he rose from the dead, and that's unlikely. Mm -hmm. But when you strip it away, strip those additions away, which are transparent, there's a clear reference to Jesus. There's also a reference later almost as a sidebar remark that tells you that he talked about this to James, the brother of the so-called Messiah. And so uh, that's in book 2200. And then, uh, and then there's writings about uh, uh, from between Pliny the Younger and Trajan, the early part of the second century, that talks about Christians and the fact that they worship this figure known as Jesus. And so, so there, are, there are writings completely outside the New Testament that testified to the reality of Jesus. And, of course, the life of Paul himself is virtually a testimony to the life of Jesus. He lived in Israel, worked in Jerusalem, responded to what took place there, and went from being a persecutor to an apostle as a result. No, I think that provides a perfect seg segue into a similar question. What happened in between Jesus' earthly ministry and the writing of the Gospels? You, you talked about how uh, scribes added some miraculous stuff to Josephus' writings. And of course, there were, there were several decades spanning in between you know, Jesus and the Gospels being written. The 50s or 60s is generally the earliest date for the, any of the Gospels. So what was going on during that gap? And wouldn't this have left time for the Gospel writers to invent stories and change key details? The answer to the question is yes, it would have allowed time for that to happen. The question is whether, in fact, it did happen or not. 
And that is extremely unlikely because these stories were being retold orally. This is an oral culture. Most stuff doesn't get written down. It gets passed on by word of mouth and repetition. There were people responsible for passing this story on and, and these accounts on who early on would have been the people who experienced them. In fact, the reason you get Gospels is because you're losing the living voice of the ancient world and the oral tradition. I tell people that in the ancient world, what counted was not something written on a piece of paper, but actually hearing from someone who was there, what's called the living voice. And so as long as you had living voices telling the story of what took place, uh, you were, that's who you were going to listen to. Once they began to die off, then you needed to write it down and record it. This is exactly what happened with uh, Holocaust stories today. We had a whole raft of recordings of people who were at Auschwitz and at other places because we were losing the live voice of those witnesses. And so people wanted to make a record that could live on after they passed on. And that's exactly what happened in the ancient world. The other thing that's going on in the ancient world is the way in which um, oral tradition simply works. And because they come out of a Jewish background, in a context in which people are used to passing on things that have some official merit, there was care with which this was done. It was done in such a way that the gist of the story remained the same. Details could, could differ, which is what we see in the Gospels. And um, there's a man named uh, uh, Ken Bailey, who was a missionary to Bedouin tribes in, in the Middle East for decades, who says that what he sees among even among the Bedouin tribes of his time um, mirrors what he thinks went on in the first century, which is that the, the, the stories and accounts of a, of a tribe or a people could be told, but there were always elders, older people responsible for the story that if it roamed too far, they would get the teller would be corrected. So, um, so, so it isn't just a free-floating exercise the way sometimes people portray it. It's a very overseen process as the stories are passed on, at least in the context of the official gatherings of the church. Yeah, it's interesting because uh, we had Mike Lacona on a while back, and uh, he would use this phrase that you know the apostles and disciples would go out and they would preach this stuff over and over and over, and he'd just keep repeating over, of course, uh, over and over again. But it's like this was stuff that would have been fresh on their minds, right? Because these are people who witnessed it or were very close witnesses to the witnesses. And so we're not talking about someone just uh, recalling a story they'd maybe heard from someone years ago. Yeah, in fact, when I talk about this in public, I say, I try and think about situations in our own lives where we're operating with people who can't read or write, uh, but people who live in an environment that's basically an oral environment. And that's your children before they're five years old. And, and so I sit down and I tell the story of reading a bedtime story to my children night after night. And of course, they get to pick the book and they have their favorite story and you get to do it over and over. And you're a dad doing this night after night. It's not the most exciting assignment you'll ever get in life uh, to be doing this on a repetitious basis. And so every now and then, because I have a little mischief in me, I'll ch I used to read these stories to my kids and I would change the wording just to see if they were with me. <laughs> and their reaction was immediate and total. Okay, dad, that's not how it goes. And not only they wouldn't say it that calmly, they would, you know, dad, that's not how it goes. And then almost always they would correct me and tell me what, what it actually is because they had heard the story enough to know it. And, uh, and so 
That's that's the way oral tradition worked in the ancient world. You heard it enough to know it. It's like the way we learn hymns. You know, pastor doesn't get up in the pulpit and say, next week we're singing Amazing Grace. If you don't know the words, go home, open your hymnal, learn the four verses of Amazing Grace so you can sing it with us next week. No, you sing it again and again and again and again as you're going up in the church, and eventually you know the words, so much so that if I go, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The words pop in your head. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, so that's how oral tradition works. Yeah, it, Psalm, Psalm uh, 23 is kind of the same way. When you say the Lord is my shepherd, it's like you can't help but just finishing the next line. <laughs> it's like it's, it's embedded in there. Exactly right. Now, you, you mentioned that sometimes the details differ. And, of course, this is an area that a lot of people have looked into and, and some people have struggled with. Um, is there a broad way to look at why the, defil- uh, the details differ while also holding to uh, the authority of Scripture, or the, the infallibility of Scripture? Well, I, the details differ because people tell stories differently and that you've got different pockets of the tradition coming from different places. I like to illustrate this this way. Uh, I, I call it guy and gal telling, although it's really not tied to, to gender. Um, but if, if I ask my wife if I'm supposed to come to dinner tonight, what she will do is she will review my schedule for the day before she actually answers my question. If she asks me if she has to come to dinner tonight, she's going to get a yes or a no. That's going to be it. Okay. Now I have a, just to show it's not gender related. I have a friend, a couple, wife's German and he's, uh, he's American. And um, she would answer the question. She'd be the one who answered the question. Yeah. Or nine. She's German. Uh, but if you asked her husband whether Ursula needed to come to dinner, he would give you the history of hospitality going back to the Greco-Roman world and work your way up to the answer to the question. So part of the difference of details is just the difference in what people feel is important to recall in telling a story. Another thing that's going on is that sometimes there's a reason for a detail that one writer has that the other author doesn't. So, for example... Um, the story of the healing of the centurion slave in Matthew and Luke. In Matthew, it's told in a condensed form, fewer verses, and the impression is that the centurion and Jesus had a conversation face-to-face. But in Luke, what you get are two emissaries speaking on behalf of the centurion, urging Jesus to heal son, and the centurion and Jesus are never face-to-face. And then the cultural script that is at work in that difference is that in the ancient world, if someone was commissioned to speak on behalf of someone else, that was as good as that person speaking, just like the press secretary represents the president at the White House. We do this too. And so my point here is, is that what Luke wanted to show that Matthew didn't care about was that Jews and Gentiles can get along because these emissaries were Jewish, and of course the centurion was a Gentile. And so he's adding a detail to make a point that Matthew's not interested in expounding. And so that's produced that difference. So there are all kinds of difference. Another difference can be the, the question that's attempting to be asked by the telling of the story. Uh, it may be that in one version, you're interested in one aspect of what's going on and in one angle, and in another story, you're interested in another aspect of what's going on. And a healing of Jairus' daughter is an, an example of this. Uh, in Mark and in Luke, this comes with the double miracle. First, you have the woman with the hemorrhage, and then you get Jairus's daughter healed, uh, raised from the dead. Um, in those two accounts, in Mark and Luke, 
you get a detailed account and you get the information that the daughter has died while Jesus is dealing with this hemorrhaging woman. But in Matthew, he doesn't care about that. Matthew likes to tell stories concisely. So at the very beginning, he tells you about a dead daughter. Okay, and he doesn't give you the timing of when she died. The only thing that matters to Matthew is by the time Jesus got to her, she was dead and she was raised from the dead. And so there there are all kinds of reasons why you get the differences and differences don't mean contradiction. That's what I tell my students all the time. They're just differences. You have to analyze why they're there, but uh, but they're differences. They're not contradictions. And, and you kind of touched on this, but when you look at uh, when you look at other first century biographies, most of them are written by, by Plutarch, and you see these same kind of detail changes where it's like in three quarters of the time he, he retells stories in different writings, he changes uh, details for the audience. And, and to my understanding, the compositional textbooks, the earlier ones, they were actually permitted to do certain things in writing. For example, uh, sometimes they would change a monologue to a dialogue to help people understand it better. Um, so is this, this is also something that has precedent in the first century. Yeah, exactly right. And in fact, the example I like to use is Paul's experience of the Damascus Road. Luke tells that story. We know it's the same author three different times in Acts. Each time there are different details, so much so that in the first telling, Ananias is a very major figure in the telling. By the time we get to the third time that it's told, he he's not even present. Right. I mean, he, he's, he's not even accounted for. And so now on that one, you can say, well, of course, he knows that the person's going to reread the story. That's true, but it shows the variation. All three are designed to depict what happened, but the details of what happened differ each time it's told. And this is coming from the same author. The author who doesn't have Ananias in the third version has Ananias very prominent in the first version. Yeah, that's, poor, first of all, poor Ananias. But second of all, <laughs> it, it's funny because by the <laughs> when I was a new Christian, I remember, I think this is from the King James, but it, it's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And that was only found in the last telling of it uh, later in, in the Acts 20, I want to say 22 or 23 or somewhere around there. Um, but it was funny because I was like, wait a minute, why are these stories different? And when you're a brand new Christian, you think, well, if it's different, something must be wrong. And, and it, you know, but it, it really helps to know that there are not only people thinking about this, but that there are solid responses and reasons for it, even in antiquity. Yeah. And again, just as an illustration, I tell people we do this all the time subconsciously. We just don't think about it. When you get a piece of music that's recorded in stereo or quadraphonic sound, Forever, and you've got different parts coming out of each speaker. It enriches the sound to do it that way. And so I tell people, what we have is Jesus, you know, in quadraphonic sound. We've got four Gospels, okay? And each one is giving us a little different look and a little different angle on him. And then what we want to do is we want to just mash it all together, which, which in one sense is valuable, but you also want to preserve the individual voices, that are a part of that telling at the same time. So this this doesn't have any kind of uh, like you said their their difference is not contradiction. So this doesn't have any contradiction uh, with the idea of the inerrancy of Scripture, the infallibility of Scripture, because this is what we're talking about when we when we talk about Scripture. Exactly right, and and, so, and, and in some cases, studying why we have the differences opens up a teaching angle on what's going on. I've already described one in the story of the centurion, you know, that Matthew has a certain purpose and emphasis that he has, and Luke has some additional things that he's trying to communicate that are a part of, this, 
part of the way he's telling the story and that are important to him to tell because he's obviously writing to uh, with a larger set of mixed uh, ethnic concerns. And I mean, because his story is flowing into the book of Acts where he's telling the story of how Gentiles got included in the body of Christ. And so so there's a there's a point to the difference is is what I'm saying here. And so sometimes the study of the differences is revealing uh, on something that this author, this gospel writer is doing that the other gospel writer isn't. Yeah, when I actually, when I learned about the concept of looking at the, or attempting to look at the Gospels um, through the lens of first century biography, Greco-Roman biography, not through the lens of biography today, it it transformed the way I viewed the Gospels. And in the way I viewed those details, they became exciting instead of becoming something like, oh no, why is that there? And uh, so it, it really transformed the way I viewed the Gospel. It's, it's almost like if you if you watched a movie from the 1950s thinking it came out yesterday, it would be like, what's going on here? Like, this is strange. But when you know the context of it, it, it just makes so much more sense. No, exactly right. And then I actually teach a class on uh, the Gospels as narrative and understanding it that focuses on this aspect of the Gospels. Because I find most people are intimidated by the differences. They don't know what to do with mm-hmm. them. And so we try and show, here's how they work. This is why they're here. This is what they give you, et cetera. And then all of a sudden, it's like the Gospels open up. Between, between these differences and the cultural scripts that I talked about earlier, those are really two key ways to walk into the Gospel material and, and have them yield uh, much of what they contain in ways that aren't initially transparent. Yeah, it, it's sort of like when when you uh, you have those verses that many try to ignore, like what do we do with the Nephilim in Genesis six? What do we do with Elohim appearing twice in Psalm eighty two and and the two powers in Genesis and that sort of thing? But once you actually look into them, it's like wow, there's something here that I was ignoring all this time, and and it actually it actually helps you understand Scripture better. Exactly right. Yeah. So let me ask you this: You've also written a book. Uh, about this, but what about alternative gospels? So last century, a pile of them were uncovered, uh, the Gospel of Thomas, for example, which many are aware of, and they seem to say things similar to the gospels, but they also have a lot of details that are much different than what we see in the writings of the New Testament. So why should we trust the letters that we currently have in the Orthodox New Testament and not the alternative gospels? Well, the reason, uh, first of all, the church has always been focused on the four Gospels. Um, by the time Irenaeus was writing at the end of the second century, he says, we have four Gospels just like there are four directions to the wind. Um, and, uh, and, and so it's always been for uh, or, origin. Early third century says, we don't read Thomas in the churches. You know, it's a way of saying that's not an official Gospel. Um Thomas is interesting. It's different than some of the other Gospels that get mentioned, what are sometimes characterized as Gnostic Gospels. Thomas is kind of, you read it and you go, uh, oh, about uh, maybe a half of it or so, or up to half of it, you go, that looks familiar. You know, that sounds like something I'd see in in the four Gospels. And then you read another 25% of it and you go, well, that sort of sounds like something I might see in the Gospel. And then you got another 25% and you go, I have no idea where this came from. This doesn't sound like anything in the God. So it's a hybrid, which is why it's, which is why it's captured scholars' attention. Uh, it's because of its makeup. But the Gnostic Gospels, the other Gospels that tend to come into this conversation, are not like that at all. They tend to be 
post-resurrection accounts of Jesus, things Jesus supposedly said to the apostles that oftentimes challenge or contradict things that are in the main gospels. They're written to push back on the Orthodox gospels and to do things beyond what the Orthodox gospels are doing. And they were never accepted uh, in in the Orthodox church or recognized. And another way you can tell it is that the four Gospels tell a coherent story of what Jesus is doing and what's about and what it's about, and it's and it connects to the expectations of the Old Testament in the sense of drawing on the Old Testament, etc. The Gnostic Gospels, in particular, have a theology proper that is completely distinct from what you see in the Old Testament. One example: in the Old Testament, God is the creator of the heavens and the earth. In the Gnostic Gospels, it is a second or third generation demigod that is uh, the creator of, of the creation and does so in a flawed way in contrast to Genesis where the creation was very good from the beginning. So you have these starting points that are completely distinct that are a clue that the Gnostic Gospel uh, tradition is not connected to the Jewish roots of, of the early Christian church and therefore is unlikely to be authentic or have dominant expression of authentic Christianity, Orthodox Christianity. And it's interesting because it's just about every New Testament book warns about false teachers. And so you should expect uh, what you're kind of saying here is that these alternative gospels, quote-unquote gospels, they were written against the church in order to kind of, uh, what, confuse people, cause cause people to be led astray, um, offer an alternative to Orthodox Christianity— yeah, in fact, in the Gospel of Thomas in saying 13, which is which is the equivalent of the Caesarea Philippi confession of, of Peter um, about Jesus being the Messiah, it's not Peter who makes the decisive confession, it's Thomas who makes the decisive confession. And the confession that he understands is, I'm a spirit being, and, and Jesus is pointing to this spiritual reality that one needs to appreciate, and Jesus commends him for it. Uh, has a private conversation with him about it. And when the disciples come to ask Thomas, you know, what it is you all were talking about, he basically says, I'm not going to tell you. It's this secret that he has that this gospel supposedly reveals to the people who are in the know. And uh, and so it's pitting the gospel, the apostles against each other, with Thomas being in the primary spot, replacing uh, the role that Peter had uh, early on in the in, among the apostles, that kind of thing. So, so there's just a long. It's just a very different presentation that stands out because of the difference. And then, of course, as I said, it wasn't read in the normal in the normal churches and the Orthodox churches uh, that that ended up uh, reflecting what Orthodoxy was. Um, as this came alongside, you had certainly had people who embraced it. We have these books and they circulated, but they weren't a part of Orthodox Christianity. Wow. So, so when do you think the Gospel of Thomas was written? Um, that's debated. Some people put it early in the second century. Some people put it later in the second century. It's a second century document in all likelihood, which means that it, it is in touch on the one hand with the Gospel tradition, but it also is doing other things and in, in infusing other elements uh, in, in portion of what it does. Also, another thing that makes the Gospel of Thomas a little bit different is it's not a narrative story of Jesus' ministry. It's a collection of sayings. 
it's a collection of 114 different sayings of Jesus. Mm. So it's it, it 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 reads like an like a like a book of proverbs almost, except they're not proverbs; they're little anecdotes of conversations Jesus had. That's the Gospel of Thomas. That's what I was, I was thinking, like a poor man's version of James when you mentioned that. Um, yeah. So, well, what do you think they would do? Uh, this is kind of on topic here with this, but let's say they found the the original First Corinthians letter that Paul wrote, the angry one. Like, what what would they do with that if they had found something that we thought was really written by an apostle? Do you think it would be added to Scripture? Do you think we would just have to uh, just just keep it as something cool and helpful? Like, how what would we do with that? Uh, well, my, my sense would be it wouldn't be added to Scripture. It would be valued and appreciated, but it wouldn't be added to Scripture um, because um, the Bible as it is is that which is adequate for, uh, one, one uh, the fact that it hadn't circulated tells you it doesn't belong in the canon. And then second, because Paul wrote a lot of things that didn't end up in Scripture, Um the but the second thing is is that is that the scripture as it is is adequate for instruction in righteousness. I mean that's the point of Second Timothy three. Even though that passage talking about the Old Testament, anything that's regarded as scripture is regarded as adequate to instruct us in righteousness, etc. And the idea that there would be twenty centuries pass before something of that kind of value would show up seems to me to run against the idea of what a canon is. Yeah, and there's also the, of course, there's the side of it where God is overseeing his word and the formation of his word. And it's often said that the, the books and the letters were not necessarily chosen, but recognized. Do you use that phrase? Yeah, I, I do. I, I think that, um, and, and they're recognized, they're recognized by their usefulness, uh, by the way in which they circulated through the churches that, you know, there's a period when you read the stuff that was written in the second century. What you will find is, first of all, it took a while for them to circulate through the entirety of the church, just by the nature, you know, we didn't have internet back then. So uh, you read the stuff written in the second century, and and these works will indicate they're aware of one or two of the Gospels. Uh, they're aware of a handful, maybe two or three, four of, of Paul's letters, etc. In other words, it took a while for those materials to get passed from church to church and come into utilization. Um, that's one of the reasons why the process took as much time as it did. It took time for it to surface across the church where the entire church could talk about it. Um, and then, uh, and, and then uh, there were certain books that were almost on the fringe, if I can say it that way. A work like First Clement, for example, might show up in certain collections early on, but didn't end up uh, being in the final collection, that kind of thing. So, um, so this process, this process demonstrated the recognition demonstrated itself by a kind of comprehensive usefulness that came in across the churches, and then eventually, as the collection was being finalized, when Ar when Irenaeus writes, just to show you the nature of the difference, Irenaeus writes in the latter part of the second century. I would say about twenty one or twenty two of the books of the New Testament were well recognized and were circulating. By the time Athanasius mentions the books that we now consider uh, comprise our New Testament, which is in the middle of the 4th century, so almost two centuries later, all the 27 books that we talk about are there. Um, Eusebius, in the interim, 
talks about the books that are recognized, the books that are discussed, the books that are sometimes associated with but don't seem to be in, and then the ones that have never been recognized. So he's got a fourfold kind of way of describing this. And so um, uh, we know that through Eusebius's discussions of, of the process, and so um, at least where it stood when he was writing. And so you see this absorption, if you will, of the church that leads to the recognition of these books. Wow. Now, this is my last question, and it kind of, I guess you could just tie in basically everything you said here, but uh, what, what if somebody asked you, why should I choose the New Testament over the Quran, over Middle Eastern writings, over whatever it may be? Like, why, why the New Testament? The reason you embrace the New Testament is it tells the story of this unique figure that's Jesus. Jesus does, there's one category Jesus will not allow you to put him in. And that is that he's just another religious great. Um, I, I, I joke with people that if we had such a thing as a religious hall of fame, okay, you know, and if I were to go out on the street and ask who should be in the religious hall of fame, I, you know, I can tell you the names that might show up. Uh, you know, Moses would show up, Elijah would show up, Jesus would show up. I'm, I'm a guess Muhammad would show up. I mean, if you just take the religions of the world and put them together, you know, you know. But my point would be Jesus needs his own separate wing, okay? <laughs> uh, he, he, he is unique in what he's claiming, and he doesn't allow you that between space. I mean, the issue with Caiaphas is when he's asked, are you the Messiah, and he responds positively, and then he says, and God's going to sit me at my right hand. His issue is not, oh, I'm one among many who God has sent. His issue is, no, I'm unique. I'm the only one. I'm the one through whom sin is forgiven. No one else is claiming that kind of a thing. So he either is who he claimed to be or he's not who he claimed to be at all. Okay, He's not in that tweener, um, you know, voted into the hall as one of many. He's not in that category. He doesn't let you put him there. Amen. So, Dr. Darabach, is there anywhere we can go to, to look at more of your work or what you may be uh, working on coming up in the future? Well, um, if you want a good detailed walk through the, all the Gospels, there's a book I wrote called Jesus According to Scripture. If you want the boil down of uh, what Jesus taught, there's a very little book called Jesus God-Man. Uh, and then I'm, I'm, I'm working on stuff all the time. I, because of my cultural engagement stuff, I'm spending a lot of time on cultural engagement issues. And the cultural intelligence book is an attempt to write an initial theology of cultural engagement, which, generally speaking, the church doesn't have and which it needs. Awesome. Well, I'll, I'll put that in the description, and then I'll also put table podcasts in the description. Uh, but thank you so much, Dr. Darabach, for joining us on The Universe Next Door. Well, thank you for joining us on The Universe Next Door. we got a lot of exciting stuff coming up, including Greg Kokel and a, a number of others in the next few weeks. Uh, so make sure to check back every Monday night at 6 p.m. and hit follow so that you're reminded of every episode that comes out. We'll see you back here next week on The Universe Next Door.